What a glorious day it is to be able to come together. We're so thankful for the presence of each and every individual, not only our visitors, but our membership alike. We're just happy, all of us, to be here. And we're happy that we can enter into a spirit of worship as is directed and set before us in the, in the New Testament. It's not our interest to worship in the way that we might want, but as to how God demands it to be. As we come together for that purpose this morning, in which we pray and we sing and we surround the Lord's table, we give as we've been prospered, and we also give a portion of time to consideration of the Word of God. I hope that you have your Bible handy. We'll be looking at some things related to Lot's wife this morning. As we think about that person and lessons we can learn from her. You'll notice the title of the lesson is exactly that, Lessons from Lot's Wife. I'm sure she never would have considered herself a teacher given some of the things we're going to study, but nonetheless, let's begin our lesson like this. Isn't it remarkable as you and I read the Scriptures that we encounter statements like this? There's so many characters that you and I encounter both in the Old and in the New Testament. Characters, and sometimes they occupy a large number of chapters and much is said about them. People like David and Abraham, many, many chapters surround their lives and the details of it. But there are also so very many characters who are mentioned very, very seldom. I've listed just a few for your consideration. What about that famous woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14? She crosses the biblical stage, but that one time. And yet, what a lasting influence she had upon David through, of course, the counsel of Joab. What about that widow and her mites in Luke 21? She cast in all she had, and what a timeless lesson all of us have so many times considered based on that activity of her life. To that, you and I could add, what about diatrophies in 3 John 9? Here again mentioned, but that lone occurrence, and yet we remember it's such a sad and regrettable lesson when he wanted to have the preeminence when he needed to submit to God's authority and do that which was the bidding of God. Maybe one final thought, Luke 19. That short man Zacchaeus, again, just mentioned that one time. And yet how many times you and I have reflected upon his life, that incident of it at least, and appreciated lessons that could help us today. I hope that those introductory thoughts might prompt you to think about the wife of the man named Lot. She too is not on the biblical stage very often, but yet while she's there, you and I can see in her circumstances and things that can be of a great encouragement to us because after all, she made some mistakes and from them you and I can learn some eternally significant lessons. I hope today that we can end that slide by remembering what Jesus said. Our, the Son of God Himself, our Savior, expressly said, Remember Lot's wife. You and I might have looked upon that differently, I suppose, if someone else had said it. But with Jesus saying, Remember Lot's wife? We need to appreciate then that there are some things we must remember about her life, things that we should extract from it. And I hope today we can at least look at a few of those things dutifully. First of all, why don't we recount briefly the Old Testament setting in which the wife of Lot enters. And following that, we'll then notice several applications or lessons from it. The scene is a very familiar one, taking us back to Genesis chapters 18 and 19 principally. 
But let me begin a few chapters previous to that. You remember that there was a gentleman named Terah. He had three boys. Abram is the most well-known. He was the youngest. But there was also Nahor and Haran. And we remember that as these were living in that area of the Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 11, verses 26 and following, that we appreciate rather readily that the following events quickly take place. Haran died, but before he did, he was blessed with a son whose name was Lot. And we remember that the family proceeded to leave with Terah from that place of Ur, headed to a new location, a different place, as they did. We remember that they, the ultimate events I've listed here are furthermore described. God specifically gave Abram, the one who later would be known as Abraham, you leave your family, you leave the place of your familiarity, and you go to a place where I'll show you. And Abram did this. Now, he took Lot with him. So it was Abraham and it was his wife Sarah. And of course, there was also the servants and others, but there was in addition to that Lot. Now, it is with that in mind, you might notice the next comment. God blessed Abraham and He blessed Lot exceedingly abundantly, so much so that there was a bit of strife between their herdmen in Genesis 13. Abraham made this offer, Lot, you choose the way you'll go and I'll choose the other. And the two parted company at that point, but Lot chose that well-watered plain of the Jordan River Valley. As he looked from that place of observation... He chose that place in which there would be a great physical blessing upon his, upon his herds and upon his flocks. You may remember Abraham, of course, went the other direction. At this point, might we already notice, Lot, it says quickly, began from that point to pitch his tent towards Sodom. And Sodom, Sodom was a city of exceeding wickedness, according to Genesis 13, verses 13 and following. Maybe in light of all that, we readily race then to the scene of chapter 18. God made determination to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and also the cities of the plain. And He informed Abraham of that by sending these angelic visitors. And Abraham began to bargain with God for the security and the preservation of that city of Sodom. God, if there's 50 righteous there, will you still destroy it? God said, no, if there's 50, I won't. And that discussion, that conversation continued through 45 and 40 and 35 and 30 and finally down to 10. If there's 10 righteous there, I won't destroy it. At that point, the chapter ends abruptly. Chapter 19 opens. The angelic visitors come to visit Lot. He welcomes them into his house. And their commissioning of mercy was this. Hasten, Lot, and get out of the city, for God's going to destroy it. Among the other things we can readily observe, there wasn't even ten righteous people in Sodom. And with that, you can well appreciate that God began to then identify hastening Lot out of that city. You'll finally notice at the bottom of this slide, with all the events transpiring concerning that bargaining and concerning the events that unfolded next. The angelic visitors found themselves in danger. For the men of the city wanted to know them sexually and wanted to know them in a way that was improper. 
And we remember that, of course, they ultimately struck the people, the men of the city, with blindness so that they, those angelic visitors, and Lot himself could remain safe. And then with that, they hasten Lot one more time. It's time to get out of this city. And so Lot and his wife and his two daughters proceed to exit. And as they do, of course, even the sons-in-law, the daughters' husbands, the ones to whom they were betrothed, they chose not to leave. And it was that as they left, these commandments were given. The angelic visitor said, Do not look back and do not dwell in the plain. The Lot and his family were given these very explicit commandments, these orders from the God of heaven. And we notice then that God rained brimstone and fire upon these cities. It is with that in mind you'll note the bottom. As Lot and his wife and those daughters proceeded in that exodus from the city, it says his wife looked back. And the text says in verses 26 and following that she was turned into a pillar of salt. At that point, Lot and his two daughters proceeded onward away and they did dwell then outside the confines of the danger that night. But maybe as you and I close that slide, we might pause to note this. Some throughout the ages have asserted that this was a strange circumstance in which Lot's wife was covered with salt in some way but they don't view it in the way the biblical narrative presents it. The text says she became a pillar of salt. It's not she was just covered with a little ash. It's not that some volcano erupted and covered her while she was running. The text goes deeper than that. Her life was taken. She became a pillar of salt. And her death is a timeless monument to a fatal mistake. Today, why don't we then from this point begin to look at some lessons that she still teaches us. Lessons from Lot's wife. First lesson that we might encounter is this one. At the top of this slide, note with me. As you think about the destruction, the loss of life that came upon her, one initial thought might well be this one. Salvation doesn't come, as you can see, by association. Think for a moment of who Lot's wife knew. She knew Lot, obviously. She was his wife. And in fact, in 2 Peter 2, verses 8 and 9, we learn that Lot there is described as a righteous man. Of course, he was kin to Abraham. We appreciate the fact that he had a tremendous amount of blessing attached to the fact of who he knew. Lot's wife knew then Lot, but she also knew Abraham. She had traveled with him as they left that previous city. She had, in fact, been a part of that pilgrimage with both Lot and Abraham. She had felt the majesty of God's blessings upon them. She had understood the great physical opportunity that had been made available to them. Lot's wife knew a lot of fine people. Beyond that, you'll notice... Those associations, though, did not save her. Just because she knew Lot, and just because she knew Abraham, and just because perhaps she had known Sarah and so many other honorable people of faith, that didn't mean she was saved, and it didn't mean that she herself was in a favorable circumstance with God. It reminds us of other scenes in the sacred Word of God, doesn't it? I've called your attention, 1 Samuel 8. 
On that occasion, you and I remember Samuel, the 15th and final judge that Israel ever enjoyed. Samuel is lifted so highly in respect. He is one to whom, of course, many individuals would look. Saul often sought his advice and his counsel even after Samuel was dead. But might we ask this, what about Saul's, What about Samuel's sons? Even though they knew Samuel, they were his children, and even though they had opportunity to appreciate not only his priesthood but his judgeship, they were rascals to say the least. 1 Samuel 8 verses 3 and 4 describe these children of Samuel as those who love to take bribes, pay a little bit and I'll render a verdict that you like. They engage in all kinds of very sad and despicable activities. Notice again, they knew Samuel. Maybe again, that shouts very loudly, doesn't it? That association by itself does not, nor has it ever, saved. Maybe these final comments highlight today. There may be many individuals who are highly esteemed for their faith that you and I might know. Perhaps a father or a mother, a granddad or a grandmother, or an aunt, an uncle maybe even your children, but that won't save you or me. How do I stand before God and what about you? Just because I know someone that's faithful doesn't mean that'll rub off on me directly in terms of salvation. It requires far more than just association, doesn't it? Maybe that's another reason that Jesus so clearly said, remember Lot's wife. Those of the first century era, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the doctors of the law, they often attached to themselves by association the blessings that God would offer. Association by itself does not save. Perhaps lesson two then directly comes before us, because beyond that, consider this with me. What about the nature of the error, the sin of Lot's wife? Picture the scene with me. Here was this lady, this woman. The city behind her was being engulfed or it was about to be destroyed thoroughly and completely. It was such that it was a very overwhelming moment. Wouldn't you want to get a look at it? And not only that, she had close relations there. Her sons-in-law were still there. And she had lived there for apparently some amount of time herself and it seems had grown very dear to it. Many of us perhaps can think about a physical place to which we hold sentimental value. It would seem that she was very closely attached to the things of Sodom, meaning, again, the people there. She had become familiar with it as a place to call home. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, she perhaps had a simple instinct to turn around and look. But doesn't it seem like such a simple activity and such an activity that almost might be excused as almost a natural reaction, a natural instinct. As you close that slide with me, she looked back. And what happened? She became a pillar of salt, the text says. It is with that in mind, might we consider this. God's wording, and I have placed it in italics for your consideration. God's word was, look not behind thee. Borrowing the language of Genesis 19, verses 17 and following. Look not behind thee. 
the angelic visitors told Lot and his family, Don't dwell in the plain, and as you leave, do not look behind thee. That's a plain statement, isn't it? A commandment, an order, an instruction that is not difficult to understand. With that in mind, notice though what comes before us. It might be so natural to look upon that as a minor, light, excusable activity. But surely this won't hurt or harm just to look back and gain one last glimpse of the city before it's destroyed. But the fact is what I think and what you think about sin and how it's little or not little is wholly irrelevant. There is no such thing as a little sin, quite frankly, is there? No sin is ignorable. No sin is, shall we say, negligible. Consider verses like these in Ezekiel 18.20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Or that famous passage from the pen of Paul in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Paul didn't qualify certain sins have their wages as death. He said the wages of sin is death. Maybe it is in light of that these last comments are significant. Aren't you and I reminded on a number of occasions as we read through the 66 Bible books that there were more than one scene in which an individual did what might today at least be said minor, excusable, but it was penalized very greatly. When David had that desire to move the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, we read about this in 2 Samuel as well as 1 Chronicles 13. The oxen that pulled it, the cart jarred a little bit, the oxen stumbled, you see, and Uzzah reached out with his hand to simply steady the ark, and he died on the spot. But what didn't he have a good motive in mind? Didn't he have a noteworthy desire in his heart? Well, he may have, but that didn't change the fact of what God said. It didn't change it in the slightest. He wasn't authorized to touch it. Might we notice in light of that, maybe another scene... Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. In that ancient day of the long ago, as these two individuals, the very sons of Aaron, the oldest sons by the way, they took upon themselves to offer fire before God. Doesn't that sound noteworthy and very, very positive? There's only one problem. They offered strange fire. And that's fire that God had not commanded, Leviticus 10 verses 2 and 3. And with that, of course, fire leapt out and consumed those two boys. One more time, we notice there's no little sin. These events remind us timelessly, just as it did in the days of Lot's wife. What she did was not simply a negligible matter. She disobeyed. What about today? As we bring down that lesson throughout the centuries of time and make application to your life and mine... Obviously, each of us could devote hours and hours to thinking of the implications. I've selected only a very, very few. We live in an age in which it seems very, very noteworthy that there are individuals who now have chosen as the church of Christ to use mechanical instruments of music in their worship, 
and many are very quick in conversation to say it doesn't make any difference. God doesn't care if you have a piano in the corner or not, they would say. Ask Lot's wife if it matters, if you do what he says. Ask Lot's wife if it matters, if his commandments are important. Every word of them. In Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, we read, Every word of God is tried. That doesn't leave out any of them. And thus, as we appreciate the orders that God has given, He speaks volumes about worship and how it's to be done. And He does care the music that's utilized, and He does care the other details and specifics, doesn't He? Beyond that, you might add a whole host of others. Does it matter or not who does the preaching in an audience or a congregation? Does it matter if it's a male or a female? Does it matter the circumstances? Some would say, obviously it doesn't. But Lot's wife would say, you better rethink that. She, if she could speak to us verbally and literally today, would shout so abundantly, it matters because God's Word says exactly what He wants. And today, when you and I think about the church or any of its features, even its plan of salvation, we know that that too is something God has prescribed thoroughly. And aren't we thankful? We aren't left to wonder if it's simply man's consideration or not. No sin, you see, is ignorable. One by one, as we've looked at those two lessons, what do we think about a third one? As you can see on this slide, Look again at Lot's wife. Think with me just for a moment about the details provided in Genesis chapter 19. I have asked you to begin thinking of it like this. She had heard what God had delivered. Again, I've placed it in quotation marks. Look not behind thee. Those four words were so straightforward and so direct. But you'll notice they had to meet with actions. The knowledge alone was not sufficient. She may have been able to quote exactly what it was that God said, and I suspect she could. But the knowledge of it alone was not enough to save her. The mere appreciation of it was insufficient because those actions that God had stated, those words required action on, his, on, on the parts of those that were the audience. I've tried to state those things like this. Don't look behind thee and don't dwell in the plain. Now the first part of that meant that as those four individuals left the city, regardless what was taking place, you perhaps could have heard the cries behind, it doesn't matter, you can't look back. That would have taken a great deal of courage, don't you think? And also determination. The cries of what was going on behind you, to hear the buildings as they were crumbling perhaps, still you can't look back. Doesn't that indicate to us the determination that must be characteristic of our life in Christ? Actions are required. And those actions perhaps are highlighted at the things at the bottom. You and I, of course, in our knowledge of the Word of God... It's one thing to know it, but may we keep in mind the necessity of doing it, to putting it into practice. These verses that you'll notice on this next slide remind us one more time about the reality of sin and the punishment that comes with it. Let's look one by one at some of these verses. In Matthew chapter 7, 
You remember in verses 24 and following, Jesus spoke about a foolish man who built his house on the sand and a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the key appreciation was this, wasn't it? The foolish man represented those who heard but didn't do. And the wise man was one who heard and did. What about you and me today? Are we more like the foolish person or more like the wise one? If we hear what God says and do it, regardless how inconvenient it may appear or what others may claim as that's just nonsense and foolishness, remember God said don't look back. You and I too should appreciate that our life in Christ won't be a very popular one in many cases. Those about us often will have words of discouragement and words of questioning and sometimes words of insult. That doesn't change the fact. Perhaps you can even imagine. Have you ever thought, were there people in Sodom who watched Lot and his family leave? Maybe some of the friends of Lot and some of the friends of his wife were watching them as they exited the city. Maybe they shouted from a distance, we're still here, why not come back, where are you going? Remember, they were prompted, though, by what God said. We can't look back, and yet she did. Maybe one last thought. What about these verses in Luke eleven twenty-eight? 28? Jesus pronounced a blessing forevermore. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. To hear God's word and then to put it in practice is so highly commended, a matter that's blessed so greatly. Surely, in light of that, we perhaps quickly raised to the book of James, for that's a key idea really in that little five-chapter book, isn't it? In James 1.22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. In James 4.17, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. James 2 verses 17 and 18, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. The works that you and I do, may we ask, are they consistently in keeping with the Word of God, or are we sliding in other things that are our preferences and our ideas and perhaps society's wishes? When it comes to the church and all that goes with it, the Word of God is the absolute and final standard, isn't it? Actions are required. And Lot's wife didn't obey. Some today might think, well, her disobedience was excused. No, it wasn't. She was turned into a pillar of salt as, of course, a final lesson to that point. It is with those things in mind, one last thing. Lesson number four. Did you ever notice with me as you read through Genesis 19 that Lot's wife and his daughters and he begun to exit the city. They proceeded out in the sense that they arrived at least at some location. Lot's wife had begun the journey to leave. She just didn't complete the journey. And she didn't complete it, of course, faithfully. She looked back before she reached the destination, before she reached the point where they were, of course, at safe placement. She, of course, needed to be continually faithful, and she wasn't. She had started to leave, but starting to leave wasn't enough. Let's build that thought like this. She perished because, again, she looked back. 
What about you and me? Do we look back to the world? Although we may have enjoyed baptism and all the blessings that have come with it, maybe that was some time in the past. Are we now looking back to the world? Looking back with a sense of earnestness and desire and looking back with a desire often to appreciate in very strong character what's happening there? Remember, what she looked back to was Sodom. And when you and I look about us in the world today, a world beneath the control of the devil, 2 Corinthians, we read chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we see, of course, a place that we should have our eyes fixed in front of us, not behind us. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. The love of the world was what apparently prompted Lot's wife. She had enough of a desire for what was going on in Sodom to look back one last time. I trust that all of us can be reminded in strength to look ahead and earn the destination's heaven. The destination, the final goal, that place we yearn to be is so much better and different than this place. I've asked you to notice a few of the features then that, that teaches us. She started to leave. You and I rightly place a very high respect and consideration on baptism. It is that act by which Christ's blood washes our sins away. We read that in Acts twenty-two sixteen. It is that act whereby we are then added to the church. Acts two forty-seven, First Corinthians twelve thirteen. It is that act of the operation of God whereby sins, our sins, are removed. Colossians two eleven to thirteen. It is that act by which we're saved. First Peter three twenty-one. But to comment at that point, let's suppose an individual is baptized faithfully. Can that person still end up lost? The New Testament says so. It says that there are many instances in which we find passages describing that very scenario. Notice, a person then can leave the world and all that goes with it spiritually and begin the walk toward heaven, but then, just like Lot's wife, not complete the journey. Looking back to the world, looking back to the devil, looking back to other things. May you and I not make the same mistake Lot's wife did. It is at that point we come back to the bottom of that slide. Two promises. In Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but who walk after the Spirit. The promise of that, no condemnation. Notice she too was promised no condemnation, but it was conditional upon her obedience. Don't look back and don't dwell in the plain. And she didn't keep her part of that bargain. What about you and me today? The blood of Christ is promised to be faithfully applied in terms of if we will but do our part by faith. Have you attended to that need today? Lot's wife has much to say to all of us, doesn't she? As we conclude the lesson this morning, the conclusion slide is this one. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. I trust all of us can truly remember then the scene of a woman whose name we do not even know. The Bible doesn't tell us what her name was. 
But yet she speaks with such loudness and such directness. And quite frankly, if she were able to directly give us messages today, it would be the very ones we've studied. Salvation is not by association alone. Furthermore, we appreciated, secondly, that there is no such thing as an ignorable sin. Thirdly, we highlighted the need for action as one does that which God commands. And finally, we noted the need to be continually faithful and to not look back to this world. Where are you focused currently? It may be there's someone in the audience that you have never yet rendered initial obedience to the gospel. You know what Jesus did for you, and you know what the Bible teaches about the necessity of belief and repentance and baptism, but you haven't done it to this point. Why not? Why not do today what the Lord commands, and you will receive the blessings, of course, that He promises to come with it. If you have, though, attended to that need, but you haven't been faithful, you have begun the journey toward heaven, but you've gotten sidetracked. Like Lot's wife, you've started looking back. You need to change your focus to, again, what's ahead. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Today, if we could pray to God for your forgiveness for sins known publicly so that you can again be reinstated to a position of faithful journeying on the road to eternal life. We'd be delighted to pray with you and for you. If we could be of help to anyone today, we would encourage you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.